Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. Very excited today. I'm going to have Pastor Chuck Baldwin on the show again. Uh, he was really interesting last time we had him on. We mainly talked about his eschatology, and he has some uh, you know unique beliefs when it comes to this, but um, some really good stuff. There's a lot you can learn uh, from what he has to say. So it was an interesting conversation, and uh, I've listened to uh, several of his prophecy series since then too, and really learned a lot of stuff. Very challenging. We'll probably talk with him a little bit about this in this conversation, but we're mainly going to be talking about the uh, political motivations for uh, our country in promoting Zionism. What is it about American politics that is so obsessed with Zionism? I understand why dispensational Christians promote it. They have a weird eschatological belief. Uh, they've bought into some bad theology that has caused them to support Israel no matter what for just for pretty much anything and everything. But at the same time, why are Republicans so supportive of Israel? Are they pandering to the evangelicals? Um, why is it that most Jews are Democrats and Democrats typically are not as supportive of Israel? And I don't understand a lot of the political motivation behind all this i have suspicions but pastor baldwin he is somebody who has been involved politically even ran for president several years ago and so uh, i want to hear what he has to say on this subject and just kind of get his insight too when it comes to what is going on in the middle east right now so i know this is going to be another exciting conversation that you will enjoy so let's hear what pastor baldwin has to say but I definitely appreciate you coming on. The uh, last interview was a big hit, and I really appreciated it. I've um, listened to several of your prophecy sermons uh, since then. I watched the entire uh, first set that was, I mean, very challenging. And then uh, I went online. I started, I watched, I think I got up to the one on the 144,000. And okay. what I, I've listened to a lot of these while doing stuff. I, I think before I move on, I want to go back and watch again but pay closer attention and uh, i'm really getting a lot out of it definitely challenging uh for sure and uh but man i appreciate uh you putting those sermons out there there is a lot of really good stuff for sure well thank you very much coming from you is a great compliment i'll be happy to send you the uh, the other set so you don't have to try to go online i mean i'd be glad to do that well, it works good for me. I'm able to, I mean, but that's the thing. It probably is better if I watch it on DVD because then I'm paying a little more attention than when I'm listening on my phone and in the car. But uh, it, it, you know, the one of the things where I've been challenged is there's so much dispensationalism that you have to unlearn. And mm -hmm. I feel like you're farther down the path in like wiping your brain from all of that. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that we carry over, uh, even right. even though I've rejected dispensationalism, there's still some holdover things. And so um, it's, you know, a lot of the stuff you brought up, it's caused me to look and say, well, wait a minute. Am I assuming am I is my belief here based on an assumption or based on an actual fact? And mm -hmm. I've realized that what a lot of what even I my position on things, it's theoretical 
more than it is just solid Bible. And so, um, yeah, I feel, I feel like, uh, it's really challenging me to take another look at a lot of things and, uh, maybe not being so dogmatic in certain areas. So, uh, but, but either way, I mean, I highly recommend it and, um, it is, it's challenging. I'm going to admit, you know, there's stuff that I'm hearing you say that, it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily going where I'm wanting you to go, but it's like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can prove that he's wrong here though. So, but I'm telling you though, I, I love being challenged on these things. And if I'm wrong, I want to get it right. And so, yeah, that's why I like, I, I need to go back and start all over again. Cause I, I, I need to hear a few things again that, uh, and, and just check up on some stuff, but either way I do, I, I appreciate it. And, um, Appreciate you doing this interview, but uh, obviously, since the last time we talked, a lot has been happening in Israel. Uh, the Zionist world is kind of going crazy. Um, oh yeah, we both understand how bad theology, I think, is motivating Christians to go crazy when it comes to a lot of this. But I've never understood the political motivation for all the Israel support. And I didn't know okay. with your involvement in politics, if uh, you might be able to explain why especially republicans are they just pandering to the evangelicals or are is this something they really believe in that advances their agenda what are we to make of all this yeah that's that's a great question and i think it goes back several decades uh there there's two answers as far as the republican party is concerned to your question the first answer is the Israeli lobby is the most powerful lobby in Washington, D.C., and there's not even a close second. I mean, you could probably take the top 20 lobby organizations in, in Washington, D.C., put them together, and they wouldn't equal the power and influence of the Israeli lobby. And with influence, we're talking money. We're talking a lot of money. And not only are we talking money, we're talking media. The Zionist uh, lobby controls the vast majority of the mainstream media. And you cannot say virtually anything against Israel without incurring the wrath of the mainstream media. And the mainstream media, unfortunately, controls the thinking of most American people. And so if you want to if you want to touch the third rail, that's what they call it, and have a death wish and you want to lose the next election, then you will come out against Israel because the media will go after you and the money will dry up. So that's the first thing. And probably that's, that's the most important thing. But since Ronald Reagan in the 1980s and the moral majority, which I was intricately involved with, I was the uh, state director of the moral majority in Florida from 1979-1989. And I traveled with Jerry Falwell on this personal jet all over the country. I was with him in the Middle East. Uh, I, you know, I was just as involved in that organization as you could possibly be. And so I really know how that went down. And there's, there's really a, a dozen stories I could tell you about that that, that could take quite a bit of time. But since that point in history, 
there was a marriage that took place politically between the evangelical churches and the Republican Party. And that became a very a very dangerous thing, and, and it's continued to this very day. And one of the aspects of that marriage was Israel. And so Reagan knew that he had to, well, it says they knew, he desired very much to curry favor with the evangelicals for his first election. And so he made a part of his plank in his campaign was promoting the evangelical causes of which on the political stage, probably the biggest cause for evangelicals is the state of Israel. So he became an ardent supporter and, and the evangelicals went, as you said, crazy over over Reagan and over his policies that were so compatible, at least in the first term, <laughs> at least theoretically, with evangelicalism. So from that point on, evangelicals have looked at the Republican Party as more or less God's party. There's a joke goes around, uh, the GOP stands for God's own party. And that's kind of what is the psycho the psychological aspect of it was the political uh, unity and the, I call it a marriage that took place and that's carried over every Republican since then has done everything they can to curry favor with the evangelicals except in the liberal northeastern states uh, where evangelicalism doesn't have as much influence. Republicans up there tend to be a little bit more liberal because they don't worry about the evangelical vote. So Republicans have have two things that they've got to consider uh, when they talk about election and re-election, and that is, number one, incurring favor with Israel itself so they can keep the money flowing in and keep the, keep the media off their back. And number two, incurring favor with the evangelicals because they turn out in huge numbers every election and most of the republicans or at least a good percentage of them come from areas which are largely um, influenced by evangelical churches and so those two things together have caused the republicans to be so adamant in their support for the state of israel okay that makes a lot of sense and so I guess the part that has me scratching my head and it's always kind of had me scratching my head because even back when I was kind of a when I was a pro-Israel guy, one of the things that I would hear pastors say all the time is we can't let this Democrat get in office because they're not going to stand with Israel. And so now, granted, Biden does seem to be standing with Israel during this conflict, but they don't typically. um they don't seem like the pro-Israel party, yet a majority of Jews are Democrats. And I've heard uh, some interviews, you know, even in the recent weeks from Jews that are confused right now because they feel like that, uh, you know, the Democrats are abandoning them and not caring about them. So uh, what? why is it that Republicans seem to be the biggest Israel supporters, yet Jews always vote Democrat? Well, Jews vote Democrats because they're liberal. A lot of them, uh, if not a majority of them, are atheists. 
and they have no affinity whatsoever for quote unquote conservative causes, especially if it's religious in nature. So you know that that's that's just right off the bat. But the other part of your question is very interesting, and let me try to take a, a minute or two to explain that. First of all, the perception that the Democrat Party is anti-Israel is as far uh, removed from the truth as it can possibly be. The the same Israeli lobby that doles out money by the millions to Republican candidates, they, they do the same thing to the Democrat candidates. And when you look at things like what we're seeing now with the war in Israel, I mean, you look at Biden. Biden is every bit the, the Zionist warmonger that Ronald Reagan or G.W. Bush or any other Republican you could think of would be, uh, if, if not more so. And this, let's not forget that Mr. Zionist himself was Harry Truman, who was the one that established, that helped to establish the Zionist State of Israel. It couldn't have happened without his signature and without his support. And uh, Truman was a Democrat. He was uh, a major uh, pro-Zionist uh, individual um, at every level. And, and so he was the first one to really bring Zionism into the, the political process here in the United States. So he was a Democrat. And, and, the, and the Johnson, um, Linda Johnson, well, and whenever the USS Liberty was attacked in 1967 and by Israel using unmarked French Mirage jets, they didn't want anybody to know who, who was the attacker. They wanted to sink the ship and by doing so, blame it on Egypt and hopefully bring America into the Six-Day War on, on Israel's side. Israel was not the victim there either. Israel was the uh, the aggressor. Israel was attacking the Arab neighbors, not the other way around. the The entire scenario has been distorted, uh, well, real quickly with with the Johnson administration, but then through history as well. So, of course, it didn't sink, and after it finally didn't sink, God kept it afloat. It's just a miracle of God. In fact. This Sunday at Liberty Fellowship, one of the survivors of the Liberty is going to be our guest. He's a dear friend of mine, Ron Kukul, and, and he has co-written a book with other survivors called Remember the Liberty. We carry that in our store. I encourage everybody to read that book and can know the truth of what happened. But what happened, uh, in a nutshell, the uh, the shelling went on, the, 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 the torpedo hit the ship. The ship was sinking. It looked like it was inevitable that it was going to go to the bottom. And as soon as it happened, of course, the Mayday went out. And the air aircraft carrier, I'm not sure if it was the, uh, I'm not sure which one it was. I, I got it written down. But uh, they scrambled. In fact, I think there were two aircraft carriers that scrambled jets uh, headed for the Liberty to come to their assistance. And then it was either McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, or it was Johnson himself. It couldn't have been any, anybody less than McNamara uh, put the work, put the order out to turn those rescue ships around. So our own our own president turned the ships, the, the airships, the jets uh, around. They were on their way to to help rescue the uh, the Liberty from the attack. And they were turned around by the White House. 
Now that was a Democrat White House. That wasn't a Republican White. That was that was Lyndon Johnson, and they they wanted the ship to sink, um, including Johnson, the White House. They wanted it to sink. It was just a miracle of God that it didn't. And read the book and tell the whole story. And they they go into great details talking about what I just mentioned there with the White House. So th- this perception that the Republicans are pro-Israel and the Democrats are anti-Israel that that is a misnomer uh, to say the least. It's it's not true. The the Israeli lobby controls both parties. There's only a handful, and there are a handful of Democrats that are, if you want to say, anti-Israel or anti-Zionist Israel. Uh, so they 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 are there, and there's what five, six, seven of them. But but that does not represent the Democratic Party as a whole. It certainly doesn't represent the establishment. Democrat Party and leadership, so they they are they're not as anti-Israel as as you think, and I think what's going on right now in Palestine is proof of what I'm saying. I mean, Biden is just coming out all all force, you know, to try to to defend and help Israel. So this I've set that to bed. I think now mm-hmm. the thing about why do Jews in general in the United States vote Democrat, even though they're Jews? Why would they Why would they not support Israel in their voting by, you know, voting Republican or voting, you know, for Israeli, Israeli causes, et cetera. And, and the real simple answer to that is that, as I said a few minutes ago, most, most Jews are atheists and they, they don't have any belief system. To them, their Jewishness has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with their biology. And so they, they look at it as uh, perhaps a, a black person would look at things from a, from a black perspective. A Hispanic would look at things from a Hispanic perspective. Uh, a white person looks at things from a white perspective. Uh, it's all it's all uh, racial, and so that that is the the Jewishness that that they talk about. It's not religion. Most Jews haven't haven't got a religious bone in their body. Now the Orthodox Jews are a different story. And the Orthodox Jews are among the most rabid anti-Zionists that you will ever come across. In fact, if you want some interesting videos to watch, you can just Google up uh, Orthodox rabbis, uh, Zionism, or something like that, and you will have more videos to watch than you can think of. These these rabbis are vehemently opposed to the Zionist state of Israel. And they actually march in protest with the Palestinians. I mean, there's videos all over the Internet where you'll see Orthodox rabbis raving Palestinian flags in protests against the Zionist government and of, of Israel. And But they're doing it from a, a religious perspective. According to their faith system, they believe that the Old Testament teaches and they believe that Moses taught and Solomon that there could not be a restoration of the Israeli nation or, or the Israelite, I should say, the Israelite nation until Messiah comes. And so obviously the the Zionists of, of 1948 have nothing to do with the Messiah. 
And so they reject Zionism as a an imposter, uh, and that it's a it's a violation of the Torah. Uh, and so they look at it from a deep theological perspective. And so they are vehemently opposed to Zionism. I mean, I'm opposed to Zionism, and and when I I he listened to and watched some of the rabbis in Orthodox Judaism talk about. Uh, Zionism, I feel like a panty waste. I mean, these guys are hard-nosed anti-Zionist from a theological perspective. So it's, it's this interesting mixture of why Jews might be opposed to Zionist Israel. Yeah. Well, I actually, last week, I interviewed uh, Orthodox uh, Jewish rabbi, part of the New Tricarta, and uh, yeah, he said all kinds of things that I I would get in trouble for saying. And um, yeah, I mean, he, he was, I, I felt like he was more anti-Zionist than I was, but I was going to ask you if you're familiar with them and what your thoughts were on them. Cause I do, they, they are an interesting bunch and most evangelical Christians, when they see Orthodox Jews, you know, they, uh, on all their videos promoting Zionism stuff, they'll always show them praying at the Wailing Wall not even realizing they're opposed to Zionism right. and they think they're supporting those people and they're not. Right. So yeah, they don't really have a clue. Mm -hmm. uh, they, all they know is what they've read from Schofield and Darby and Larkin and Lay and, and all that, you know, the brainwashing that's gone into dispensational teaching and they've never really studied it for themselves. At least, you know, I, I can say that because I, I never did. I, I was taught it in two Bible colleges that I attended. That's all I knew. And and I I taught it myself for over thirty years. So I was I was immersed in dispensational futurism and schofieldism. And and you know, I had the Holy Spirit had to get a hold of my heart in a dramatic way and then it took seven years for me to unlearn the dispensational theology that I've been taught, and now I've been teaching it for about nine years. But I mean, it, it's a very difficult thing to break free from that. And and the fact is, I hate to say it, but I I think most pastors are just lazy. Yes, they they yeah. just don't want to do the hard, laborious work that it would take to unlearn something that you've been taught that wasn't true. And then to find out what is the truth. I mean, I'm 16 years into this, and I still haven't learned at all. But goodness gracious, you know, you have to have a desire to know the truth before you're going to find it. And so, you know, I think really as far as evangelism is concerned, I think, you know, we, there's a lot of things we could say as to why. My personal opinion is I just think they're too lazy. Well, yeah, it's interesting you say that too. And and. I'm not saying this to butter you up or anything, but you know, when I listen to other people teach, you can tell when, um, people who got their thinking from their own personal study versus those who read other books. And you can always tell because of the terminology and the language and things that they mm -hmm. use. And so you can tell when they're just repeating somebody because they'll kind of repeat all those mistakes. And so that's the thing I've been interested in listening to you is I feel like, you know, what you, the conclusion you've come to has been from the scriptures. You're using scriptural language. Um, you're using uh, language terms that 
I'm not commonly hearing in the dispensational world. And it, it's clear you're not just repeating something somebody told you, which is what we often do, you know, just kind of by habit. And so you can, you can tell who's repeating what they heard versus who did the intense study. And um, so that I, I've thought that's, that's been interesting in listening to your series and the things well, that you're yeah, saying. Well, yeah, because that's exactly the way it happened. You know, when God spoke to my heart back in 2007, and at first I didn't understand what, what was going on because every time I broached the subject of, of Israel or prophecy or anything related, I would have this, this real disturbance in my spirit, and I didn't understand that. And that went on for months and months and months and months. And finally, I got the hint, well, this must be the Holy Spirit speaking to me about, about this. And so that's when I began a multi-year you know, prayer closet mm -hmm. uh, where I'm just pleading with God to, okay, if this, if this is not right, if this is not truth, I want to know truth. I've always been that way. And so, but I, I got, I have to know what truth is. If this isn't truth, I don't know anything else that you're going to have to teach me. So with that spirit and open-mindedness, I just went to the scripture, Tommy. I, I, I didn't go to anybody's tapes or books or, or what other people were saying. I just went into the scripture myself and really prayed and asked the Holy Spirit to show me truth. And so that's when he led me to the study of Israel itself. He didn't lead me to the study of prophecy. That came later. And I think that's a big mistake with a lot of Christians. You know, they first get saved, and one of the first things they want to do is to leap into the Revelation. <laughs> yes, not a good way to start. I mean, Revelation is the last book of the Bible, not the first. It's not in the middle. It's the last, which means that everything else that is written led up to that. And if you don't have a foundation for the book of Revelation, then you're just floating in air out there. And that's where these bizarre theories and interpretations of Revelation come from is because they don't have a, a foundation upon which Revelation is interpreted. They're just interpreted on, on, on what they read from the book itself without any history, without any theological background, Old or New Testament without any understanding basically of the new covenant and they that and they come up with all these crazy things that we hear today but so god i'm so thankful god did not lead me into the book of revelation first in fact i didn't start the revelation series until i think it was 19 i mean i mean 2020 uh 2021 i can't remember it it, it was 2 or 3 years ago maybe 3 or 4 years ago that i started revelation from so from 2000 7 to 2014, the only thing I was doing was praying and unlearning dispensationalism. It took me seven years to unlearn mm -hmm. everything I've been taught. And then in 2014, I began teaching, and, and, and what the Holy Spirit led me to teach on was Israel itself. What does the Bible teach about Israel? And so from 2014 until 2019, I think I finished my last message in 2019, maybe Tony. And mm -hmm. the the subject was Israel, and God gave me the foundation on understanding Israel, so that prepared me for the study of prophecy. And and then as I started into the Book of Revelation, I I, I literally would sit in my office in my chair and I would throw my hands up and say, "This is 
the most incredible thing. Everything that God taught me about Israel, now I'm seeing confirmed in the teaching on Revelation prophecy. It's It just all came together as in a beautiful picture that, you know, it was seamless. You know, there were no... There were no questions. There were no contradictions. There, there were no, uh, you know, bumps that you had to work around. I mean, everything just flowed together as one, as I believe the Bible does, if properly interpreted. And so that's how it came for me. And so that's how much work. The point is, I'm trying to make is that's how much work it took me to get where I am today. And I'm not even through with the prophecy series mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting about what you're saying is it actually lines up with what Second Timothy two fifteen says, where it says, "Study to show thyself approved to God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." And in the dispensational world, they've hijacked that term "rightly dividing" to mean dispensationalism. When Paul told Timothy, "You know, you're going to have to put in." The work, and I, I've got a book right here in front of me called Principles of Biblical Hermeneutics. We did it in the first uh, semester in Bible college, and um, and it teaches you all these rules for biblical hermeneutics. The, the thing is, though, I've gone through this book recently, and there's exceptions to every one of these rules that they give. And if you don't have a strong uh, general knowledge of the scriptures, you're going to mess up tons of stuff. And so the problem is they're teaching everybody all these rules and then they're just immediately applying all these things in areas where they shouldn't. And you just, you can't get around putting your own study into things because you will mess everything up. If you just repeat some extra biblical rules, some theologian came up with. And so, right. yeah, I, I, what you explained to me was truly rightly dividing, but uh, just a, a couple other quick questions I, I do want to ask you, and I don't know if there's a short answer to this. And so, you know, maybe this isn't, isn't the time for it too, but what is it too, that what is our country's motivation for getting involved in other people's wars? Is it the Israel lobby pushing for it? Or do we have something to gain? You know, these wars cost so much money, yet it seems like our country is always so anxious to get in everyone's wars. What, what am I, I mean, to make yes, of this? Most of the wars that have been fought since World War II have been on behalf of Zionist Israel. So we'll just say that okay. as a matter of fact and move on. But yeah. that is a fact. Okay. okay. But, but the other, the, the, the broader answer to your question is it costs so much money to whom it costs the taxpayers hmm. a lot of money. But the war profiteers, the people who profit from war, get filthy rich. There is nothing that provides more financial profit than the industry, if I can call it that, the industry of war. War is the most profitable industry in the world. When when you look at all the connections to the military-industrial complex. When you think about all the workers, all the corporations, all of the scientists, all of, of the of the uh, people that, that promote uh, the various products, uh, public relations people, 
And when you put all of that together, you're talking about a sizable percentage of our our economy is built on war profits. Now, we have done that purposely, but still it's a fact that it's, it's a, a huge business for profit. And, and that includes Washington, D.C. The lobbyist for uh, Boeing and Northrop uh, and, and Northrop and all these giant military uh, organizations, military fi- financial organizations and industrial organizations, yeah, financial, the banks, put the banks in there, put the Federal Reserve in there, put the international banking cartel in there, which is controlled by Zionists. Uh, and, and you're talking about millions of people. You're talking about billions and trillions of dollars being made at at the expense of people's suffering and death and and all of that. But but that's okay, you know, because money is first, and that's the only thing that matters to these people. And they don't care about the victims on the ground. They don't care about the people that are being killed. They don't even care about you know the political issues that are involved in all they care. About. It's like any other business. If you are, you know, if you sell paper clips, you know, you don't care who buys your paper clips. You don't care what the paper clips are going to be used for. You just you just want to sell as many paper clips as you can. So if your if your product is missiles and bombs and jets and guns and ammunition, and explosives and all that. You know, you're not really worried about the politics of it. The only thing you you want, you want the Pentagon to give you a, a multi-billion dollar contract for your brand new airplane that you just built. You know, you're in competition with two or three other people that are vying for the same contract. And, you know, you want it's it's purely a matter of business. And so it, it, war is a business. Uh, there was a book that was written by General Smedley Butler, who's the most decorated Marine Corps officer in the history of the Marines. And he wrote a book uh, following World War One, and we used to carry it. And then for some reason, we weren't able to get the book anymore. But he, he the name of the book, it's a short little book. Anybody can read it in a few minutes. It's called War is a Racket. And again, this is the most highly decorated. He's the only, only uh, military uh, veteran, and um, in my knowledge, that has been awarded the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor twice, and he wrote the book "War Is a Profit," and he went into the what I'm saying now, but he, from his own perspective about how he saw the war profiteers that were the ones that were generating the wars, they were ones that were manipulating the wars, they were one the ones that were perpetuating the wars, making sure they didn't stop, making sure there's always another war to fight. You know, because that's the only way they can make money. And that's why I wrote the book, War is a Racket. Everybody ought to read that. And it's it's just a, a, a business, plain and simple. So, you know, yeah, there are political, you know, ramifications and reasons. There's no doubt about that. I'm sure there are a um, few people in Washington that are seriously thinking about national security. Uh, so I think there's obviously we can't discard that altogether. But the, but the bottom line is war is very, very profitable. And and that's why America always has to be at war. We always have to find an enemy. We have to create – if we can't find one, we'll create one because we have to keep the war machine 
going forward. That's how the money is made. That's how the, the politicians get rich. It's it's just it, I think the word that that Smedley Butler used is the right word. It's a racket. That makes sense. Makes sense. So, do you think this war going on in Israel right now has any prophetic significance? None. Zero. Zilch. Okay. I, I, fig I figured that's what you would say. I, I, <laughs> but I, I wanted to. I, I wanted to check. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. I preached the message uh, after the war broke out. I've actually preached three messages so far on the war, and the very first one uh, is entitled "Is the Hamas-Israeli War a Part of Bible Prophecy?" That's the title, and I go in to prove from Scripture that it's not. I don't believe that there's any signs for the second coming. Uh, I, I just, I, I, all these sign watchers, they're completely misinterpreting the, the scriptures. They're going back to their dispensational roots on that, and the Schofieldism. And the, everything is a sign. I mean, you know, Brother Tommy, they, every, you know, they come up with everything. Anything that happens in the Middle East, of course, is a sign. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certain weather conditions will, will change or something. There'll be an outbreak of tornadoes or, or there'll be a famine somewhere or there'll be an earthquake somewhere. Well, that's a sign. You know, anything that happens in Palestine is a sign. Anything that happens in Russia is a sign. You know, it, the, the politicians will get up and they'll they'll say things, you know, and, and, and that'll be a sign. Uh, you know, they're, they're sign crazy. Of course, then, you know, the signs come and go and all these predictions uh, about you know the end times never come to pass and they never have the character to go back and say to their audience you know I, I really blew it on that one I said that was going to take place and I based it on this and it didn't happen and so obviously I was wrong they don't do that they just move on to the next sign and use the same verses they used for the last 10 years worth of signs to prove that sign and they're just sign crazy. And there are no signs, in my understanding of Scripture, there are absolutely no signs for the church relative to the second coming of Christ. None. Zero. Zilch. And I do believe that it's important that people, if they study properly, that they'll come to that understanding. Because it's interesting, when you read about Schofield, who was an amazing character, he he was a very intelligent man, even though he was a, he was illiterate in terms of of actual um, professional education. He didn't have any. He gave himself a law degree. That's cool. Hmm. Uh, and then he gave himself a doctor of divinity. You know, that's pretty cool. You know, he never went to law school. He never went to to Bible college. You know, he, had, he never had any theological training. He had never had any scholastic training to speak of at all. Uh, the man was was obviously uneducated, but he was an intelligent man. He had a natural intelligence. He was a great speaker, very charismatic, uh, very entertaining, and which attracted, of course, a large audience to him. And then after his supposed conversion, um, he went into the religious realm. And he was a con man. He spent six months in jail for fraud. He walked out on his wife and little children back in, this is back in the 1800s, whenever there was no safety net for for families and little kids, 
and he just walked right out on them and left them destitute. Uh, I mean, the guy was a creep, you know, and truthfully, I mean, that's, I think, a word that's pretty applicable. But he he was also, when he came up with this, uh, this what we call Schofieldism, this dispensational uh, aspect of uh, eschatology, which he really picked up from Darby. Uh, he read Darby, and he pretty much just regurgitated. You talked about what so many preachers do, regurgitating what they've been taught or what they've heard or read. Well, that's what Darby did. He just regurgitated what he read from Darby. And he, I remember <laughs> reading a, an instance about him in, in um, let's see, it was in 1912 in the USS, uh, it wasn't the USS, it was the HMS Titanic went down. Um, and when, when the Titanic disaster took place, uh, Schofield said that was a sign of Christ's soon <laughs> return. Uh, you know, so these guys have been painting signs ever since Schofield said the Titanic was a sign that, that Jesus was coming. And he said other things too, it wasn't just that. He, he said a lot of things that were going on at that time were signs. Um, so it's it's the same thing, and no, no. The, the short answer to where I went way around the bush. The, the short answer to the question is, I do not believe, upon my study of the scripture, that there are any signs for the church relative to the second coming of Christ. Okay, all right. Well, I'll do this one final question for you then. So, what are your thoughts on the upcoming presidential election? Are there any candidates that you're excited about at all? If <laughs> if not, you know. What's the uh, what's the best we got to choose from, in your opinion? No, there's not a single candidate I'm excited about, and I'm not excited about Donald Trump. And I'm sorry, <laughs> but the, I, I I can't understand these evangelical Christians that have ignored his blatant blasphemy and uber pride and his his utter lack of character. Um, yeah, he does. He says some of the right things, and, and once in a while he'll do the right thing when he was in office the first time. But he will just as often do the wrong thing. And then, you know, he came out with a statement a few days ago, said his first day in office, if he's reelected, is he's going to he's going to enact the Insurrection Act and declare martial law and put federal uh, troops on the streets of America to enforce the laws. Now that's that's really constitutional right i mean that that's really conservative thinking i mean the guy's talking about declaring martial law and putting the army in in the streets of america on day number one after he's elected and yet christians and conservatives think this guy is just you know their champion so i'm not i'm not excited about donald trump of course i can't stand uh, joe biden and the rest of the of the stage uh, the people that are on you know i can DeSantis has some good points, but he's a rabid Zionist, um, maybe even more so than Trump. And I never thought I'd hear myself say that. Um, Nikki Haley is a warmonger's warmonger. Uh, you talk about going to war, she'll have a similar. She says, we need a, a department of offense. She says, we've got a department of defense. We need the department of offense. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, I mean, I, there's none of them uh, that, that I that I could support uh, myself. But 
as far as here's the thing that I, I think the message should be, and here's what I think that pastors ought to be saying, and I think this is where evangelicals are really screwed up. I think they are putting all of their emphasis on a political solution to America's problems. Everything is about who we elect, especially for president. And I, I think that has to hurt our savior in such a deep way. I, I'm trying to imagine how God would would feel about this kind of thinking when his preachers, his servants, and his people are putting more faith and confidence in these corrupt politicians than they are the God of heaven. The, the only solution for America is the new covenant gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only thing. It's the only hope. And if we don't return to the spiritual solutions, if we don't return to the gospel, the true gospel of the new covenant, if we don't return to putting Christ back on the throne of problem solving, and I'm not talking about just preaching the gospel, I'm talking about preaching the whole counsel of God and giving people the entire word of God and, and, and telling people what they need to hear instead of what they want to hear and tickling their ears and having a, a, a Sunday circus every every Lord's Day and, you know, a rock concert and all the all the shallow preaching that's going out, you know, so not to offend anybody or hurt anybody's feelings or or cause anyone to to leave the church and the offerings go down and start getting bold, courageous men of God in the pulpits again, preaching, thus saith the Lord, and not worrying about who's offended, who gets hurt, and who leaves the church. Until we get back to that, Brother Tommy, I don't think there's any hope for this country. I'm with you. Yeah. I, no, I, I'm totally with you. And But, uh, well, that's good stuff. I really appreciate you. Uh, taking the time to let me talk to you and interview you again. I appreciate your stand that you've taken. I appreciate, you know, the uh, what you're promoting and teaching. I think we need more of this in America. And uh, it's it's always good to hear what you have to say. And so uh, thank, thank you so you. much. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I appreciate you very much. Thank yes, you. Yes, sir. All right. Well, God bless you and you take care and we'll talk to you later. All right. Thank you, Brother Tommy. Yes, sir. Bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. Another uh, good interview with Pastor Chuck Baldwin and appreciate him uh, coming on the show again. If you get a chance, check out his YouTube channel, uh, watch his sermons. I promise you, even if you do not agree with everything he says, and you probably won't, but you will be challenged. He will, uh, he, he will challenge your position in the stuff that he has to say. And uh, instead of just like outright dismissing what he says, you know, and stating what your position is, what you should ask yourself is, am I sure my position is right? How much, um, you know, strength does it have? Am I just ass making assumptions? Is this theoretical or is it spelled out? And you will be challenged when it comes to that. And so I uh, appreciate him doing this. Appreciate you all watching. Uh, more exciting content coming your way. Uh, big interview with Dr. Dino himself, Kent Hovind, that'll be coming up uh, probably tomorrow. So I know y'all are going to want to see that. So appreciate you all joining me. Spread the word on this, and uh, we will see you all next time. God bless.